It's not just good conversation, it's your voice on the weekends. Weekends with Kenny Rahmeyer on News Radio KLBJ. I enjoy your show. It's great. I really appreciate when you host the program, whether it's with another person like Mark or just on a Sunday, Saturday evening. Uh, I really think you do a great job. Come on, talk to me. What's going on? What's going on? And good afternoon to you. Thanks a lot for being with us on the weekends here on News Radio KLBJ. I'm Kenny Rahmeyer. Lots to get to with you this afternoon. We are live and local for you on this last Sunday in October here on KLBJ. The latest developments on the war in Israel. That's coming up for you today, along with really taking a look at the divisions that are continuing to emerge between various factions in the Democrat Party. As a result of a lot of the protests, a lot of positions taken by the president, his administration, on what's going on over in the Mideast. We'll have that for you this afternoon here on KLBJ. Some new information that's come out this weekend about the main shooter. Of course, you know he's been caught. He's dead. And um, we'll give you the latest on that. And also... Coming up this week, I recognize, based on everything I've read, experts that I've listened to on this, it's probably a long shot. Nevertheless, a couple of states, state courts, are going to hear arguments about whether former President Trump should even be on their state ballots, providing he's the Republican nominee coming up for this presidential election. It's kind of interesting questions about what does the Constitution mean in in some parts of it at least and we're going to get into that a little bit here this afternoon on on KLBJ and a whole lot more as well and you're always welcome to join us 512-836-0590 you can give us a call or send us a text here on KLBJ some of the latest developments this afternoon on what's going on in Israel and the Mideast President Biden spoke with Israeli's prime minister by phone earlier today. It's the first conversation that uh, they've had since Israel expanded their ground assault in Gaza. That, according to the White House, a readout of their conversation wasn't immediately made public. So we don't know the contents of the conversation. We do know that after Israel had shut off communications in Gaza on Friday, the United States pressured the Israeli government to turn everything back on. And so internet connectivity was partially restored in the Gaza Strip as of today. Up until today, there had been a near complete communications blackout in Gaza. More than two million people didn't have hardly any ability to text, talk, couldn't call an ambulance, no Facebook, no Instagram, no news, all of that. Israel knocked out the cell towers, the cable lines, and the infrastructure 
with strikes uh, Friday night. So a near blackout of connectivity. However, due to pressure from the United States, some communication has been partially restored. Israeli soldiers today suffered their first casualties, it's been reported. And there are thousands of people that are trapped in Gaza. Many of them actually of untold numbers broke into United Nations warehouses for food with a worsening humanitarian crisis developing there in the Gaza Strip. The Israeli Defense Forces said that their soldiers are fighting with Hamas fighters on the ground as Israel's army continues to expand into the northern part of Gaza, near Gaza City. The Israeli ground invasion is expected to focus initially on Gaza City, where a lot of Hamas's infrastructure and weaponry is believed to be located. The Israeli military said today it struck over 450 militant targets just in the past 24 hours, including Hamas command centers, anti-tank missile launching positions, and other facilities. I mentioned that thousands had broken into the UN warehouses there in Gaza. It's also being reported that 40 more aid trucks have come into Gaza, with including food, water, and medicine. And, and those are some of the latest developments on the ground over in Israel as they've been reported this afternoon. Back here at home, the newly elected Speaker of the U.S. House, Mike Johnson, said today on an interview with Fox that uh, he believes a standalone bill for Israeli aid is going to come to the House floor this week. Of course, the, the president had sent to Congress uh, an aid package of over $100 billion, aid for Ukraine as well as Israel and some other items like border security. And so uh, the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, said, yeah, we, we think we're going to be able to get to that this week. Here's Johnson on Fox. There are lots of things going on around the world uh, that we have to address, and we will. Uh, but right now, what's happening in Israel uh, takes the immediate attention, and I think we've got to separate that and get it through. I, I believe there'll be bipartisan support for that. I can't even repeat to you on television some of the things that they told us firsthand that they've seen in Israel at, at the hands of Hamas and, and their, their accomplices. And so we've got to address this now. Uh, we should not waste any more time, and I think we'll get it through the House this week. The administration had some people out on the Sunday TV talk shows as well. Front and center was the U.S. National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, who repeated a lot of the administration's uh, previous positions about the Israeli government and its military should do everything in their power to protect the civilians who were caught in Gaza. He said the risk of uh, an escalation of the Israel-Hamas war into a wider regional conflict is real. He was on ABC's This Week program. Here's some of what National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan had to say. War, of course, is highly unpredictable, so it's difficult uh, to predict how it will play out. What I will say this, uh, Israel was attacked in a brutal, vicious terrorist attack. They are taking steps to go after the terrorists who struck them. They have been doing so from the air. They're now doing so on the ground. 
Hamas, this brutal terrorist organization that conducted the attack, is hiding behind the civilian population, which puts an added burden on Israel uh, to differentiate between the terrorists and innocent civilians. It is absolutely true that Hamas is doing everything in its power to put those people in harm's way, to use them as human shields, to hide rocket infrastructure and other forms of terrorist infrastructure among civilian areas. And so another thing I want to bring up here, it's really some interesting reporting this weekend about how much, even as guys like Jake Sullivan, Secretary of State Blinken and others have been towing the line for the administration, saying that Israel has every right to uh, pursue whatever military action they want to pursue in Gaza and all the rest. But interesting reporting this weekend about the Biden administration urging Israel to rethink its plans for a major ground offensive in the Gaza Strip. Instead, the White House is, is pushing for a more surgical operation using aircraft and special operations forces to carry out more precise targeted raids on the high-value Hamas targets and infrastructure. Report says administration officials have become highly concerned about the potential repercussions of a full ground assault. They're also concerned that it could derail negotiations to release nearly 200 hostages. And so the reporting continues, the administration's worried that a ground invasion would result in numerous casualties among the Palestinian civilians as well as Israeli soldiers, and that would trigger a dramatic escalation of hostilities in that part of the Mideast. So U.S. officials are pressing Israel to consider a more targeted operation. They say it'd be more conducive to hostage negotiations and less likely also to interrupt humanitarian aid deliveries. Now, this kind of goes against a lot of what the administration is saying on the record because the president and his top officials have indicated support for this planned ground offensive that we've been hearing about now for the last couple of weeks or so. And the administration is saying that they're asking the tough questions of Israel about all of this. The White House declined to comment on this for the reporters, those involved in a lot of these discussions in the White House say the administration's change of posture is unmistakable. Of course, a lot of these sources are, are, are talking on a condition of anonymity. But they say the administration has clearly shifted from an initial, we have your back, we'll do whatever you want, to now, you really need to rethink your strategy. Despite private warnings, American, uh, U.S. officials do not have great confidence that Israel's going to reverse its intent for this large-scale ground offensive. Now, U.S. officials haven't threatened to withdraw support or impose any consequences. And, of course, the administration is trying to get this aid package to Israel, $14 billion, done through Congress. But in the immediate aftermath of the Hamas attacks, according to these reports, many senior U.S. officials have privately supported this massive Israeli response, which they think is necessary to get rid of 
Hamas and discourage Hezbollah from opening up that second front. But as the days have gone by and Israeli officials have briefed U.S. officials on their plans, the officials reportedly are becoming increasingly concerned that the planned ground assault is going to turn into an open-ended quagmire. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin visited Israel mid-October, and after that, Pentagon leaders began sharing their worries about all this with the State Department. So a few days later, the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, held a nearly eight-hour meeting with Israel's war cabinet in Tel Aviv, and U.S. diplomats left those meetings concerned that the Israelis hadn't developed a sound and workable military plan. They were especially concerned about a a big offensive that would put U.S. personnel in Iraq and Syria at risk from the Iranian proxy groups. And that would, of course, increase the chance of the U.S. getting involved in all this. And then concerns about this whole thing became evident in the United States as liberals were beginning to increasingly become outspoken and criticizing Biden for not taking stronger action to restrain Israel. So you got to wonder, are there strategic issues? And these issues are legitimate about not interrupting humanitarian aid, about not trying to kill as many people on both sides, about trying to make sure that we're minimizing the chances for a wider war in the region? Or is it because the Biden administration is now starting to get a lot of heat from within its own party about why the administration is taking such a strident position in favor of Israel? And what about all the Palestinians? We're going to talk about that and a whole lot more coming up here on KLBJ 512 836 0590. You can give us a call or send us a text here on KLBJ. Before we go to break, though, of the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, even as I've just given you some of the latest reporting on what's going on behind the scenes in the White House, Sullivan continues to say we've taken the position that Israel has a right to defend itself against these terrorist attacks. Here's Sullivan. President Biden has said this, Secretary Blinken and Secretary Austin have said it, and I've said it. Every innocent human life is sacred, and every step must be taken to protect human life, whether that be Palestinian or Israeli or anyone else. We will continue to talk to our Israeli counterparts. We'll continue to ask hard questions about uh, how they are thinking this through, how they are proceeding. But ultimately, these are their decisions. This is their action uh, and their best posture to be able to answer questions about how it's proceeding. And there's a lot of heat coming down on Israel uh, from all over the world. We'll talk about that coming up. The U.N. Secretary General warned today that the situation in Gaza is growing more desperate by the hour and the United Nations Security Council is going to hold an emergency meeting tomorrow about all of this, as as worthless as, as those meetings are, if history gives us any guidance on that. But still, that's what's going to be going on at the UN tomorrow. So we'll talk about some of these divisions in the Democrat Party 
between President Biden and some of the more vocal members of his party about all of this, as well as a report today that Western officials are concerned that the war in Israel, what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, we're starting to run out of military hardware. We'll talk about it coming up here on KLBJ. And thanks for being with us on the weekends here on News Radio KLBJ. I'm Kenny Rahmeyer, live and local for you this afternoon, giving you all the latest developments coming out of the Israel Hamas war today, this weekend. And right before the, the break there, I talked about uh, the United Nations is going to have an emergency meeting tomorrow. And I've, I've been critical of the United Nations. Organization has been in place now for many years. And aside from uh, collecting for UNICEF around Halloween time and you know helping with some humanitarian aid, which certainly is important depending on what's going on, you hear a lot of talk and not much else, right? 512-836-0590. You can give us a call or send us a text here on KLBJ. Robert's calling in this afternoon on KLBJ. Hi, Robert. Hey, Kenny. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you. Hey, I was just calling. The U.N.'s just a big old joke. You know, they, we pay all that money. It's kind of like paying for the fees on a cell phone or utility bill. You don't know where, where the heck it's going. Uh, you know, what they should be doing, like you just mentioned, they should be out there right now within blue helmets, providing humanitarian aid, getting people out of there, uh, you know, make, making sure they get taken care of, and even have uh, uh, the peacekeepers actually documenting and looking at stuff. But, no, they're just criticizing Israel. I, I mean, I think it's time. Get them off U.S. land. Our well, government... I understand your point. We certainly put a lot of money into the United Nations, more so than anybody else. And and as I mentioned a moment ago, I'm not sure if you heard this, there were supposedly 40 uh, humanitarian aid trucks going into Gaza today. Not sure how much the blue helmets, as you referenced, uh, are involved in that effort. We know some of it's from the United Nations. So where do you see this going at this point? We I don't know if you've heard what I've been talking about here, Robert, that... The administration, it sounds like, is putting pressure on Israel behind the scenes to dial it back as far as a big ground offensive, which we've been hearing about now for the last two or three weeks or so. What do you make of that? I, I think they just need to let them do what they got to do. Because what, what's my opinion, Kenny, what's going to happen is they're going to start getting attacked from the north uh, more severe. They're going to get probably start getting attacked from the West Bank, uh, some, some more of the proxies. And just think of it as your home. If your home's been in, they're breaking in from the back door, the front door, the garage, you're going to do whatever you can to protect your family. And and that's what's going to happen to Israel if they don't get our, our 100%. And they're going to do what they have to do to protect their people, which that would be using nuclear weapons. If they got to do it, they're going to do it to survive. Robert, thanks. Boy, I tell you, going nuclear, that that takes it to a whole nother level. I, I do want to mention, thanks for your call, Robert. 512-836-0590 if you'd like to join us here on KLBJ. I, I want to get into this a little bit because I would like to think that the divisions within the Democrat Party is not going to influence 
the Biden foreign policy with regard to Israel here. But I've been seeing a lot of reports this weekend. Here's one out of the Washington Post. I'm quoting here, one ripple effect of the Israel-Gaza war is the warp speed unraveling of relations between President Biden and some of his most loyal voters, Muslims and Arab Americans. Report goes on to say the, the open disdain toward Biden from many in this reliably democratic bloc is among the many signs the conflict over in the Mideast is quickly remaking U.S. domestic politics. The events of the week described in detail in interviews with several Arab American and Muslim advocates inside and outside the administration, nearly all of them speaking on the condition of anonymity, of course, to uh, candidly be able to describe their dealings with the White House. And here's a little bit of what they're saying as senior Arab American White House staffer directly involved with the concerned communities said high-level staffers are holding several meetings with Arab, Muslim, and Palestinian Americans to discuss the White House response. Now, in a statement Friday, a White House spokesperson said we're reaching out to hear directly from members of Muslim, Arab American, and Palestinian American communities. Post goes on to say, above all, Arab Americans and Muslims interviewed by the Washington Post expressed a sense of isolation, a feeling of drift in a party that they had viewed as a haven from the open hostility toward them expressed by Republicans. And the administration's week of damage control meetings with U.S. Arabs and Muslims started on Monday at the State Department. A small group of community representatives sat down with Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. Conversation reportedly was intense but remained cordial. Talks more emotional later that evening at separate temperature-taking meetings in which senior White House officials tried to reassure Muslim and Arab American political appointees from across the government. It's pretty obvious, though, some, in Congress at least, are not having any of this. One of those is uh, Priscilla Jayapal, a member of the squad, a congresswoman from Washington State who was on NBC. And here's a little bit of what she had to say about all this today. He is, I think, um, you know, going to be challenged to explain uh, an issue of this moral significance to people. The American people are actually quite far away from where uh, the president and even Congress, the majority of Congress, has been on Israel and Gaza. They, they support the right for Israel to defend itself, to exist, but they do not support a war crime exchanged for another war crime. And I think the president has to be careful about that. All right, the president's got to be careful. And and is it correct? Is is she saying that uh, she represents the majority of the American people? We'll talk about it coming up. Stay with us here on KLBJ. And Kenny Rawmeyer back with you here on a Sunday afternoon. Always good to be with you on the weekends here on News Radio KLBJ. Thanks a lot for being with us. Well, you just heard this update in our Fox News report there a couple of minutes ago. Protests all around the world. Protesters calling for ceasefire. They've taken to the streets in huge numbers. I got one report here says the aggregate figure for all the demonstrations hard to gauge, but it could well be in the millions. Demonstrators in London, in Rome, in Paris, 
Beirut, Baghdad, Cairo, Malaysia, Pakistan, New Zealand. The Turkish president, Erdogan, this weekend had a massive event in Istanbul yesterday. Hundreds of thousands of people waving both Palestinian and Turkish flags. He reiterated remarks branding Israel as an occupier and insisting that Hamas was not a terrorist organization. That country is a member of NATO. The House Foreign Affairs Chairman, Congressman Michael McCall, who represents a good part of the KLBJ listening area, was on Fox today and had this to say about Turkey and, and others. The fact that he's supporting Hamas and is a NATO ally, and guess who else is? Mr. Putin. Hamas mm-hmm. visited him at the Kremlin, mm-hmm. um, and we're seeing now the solidification of Russia, China, and Iran all together in this. They're all allies against the West and the United States. So what do you make of all these protests? And there's, there's been protests of, in so many places, all around the world, political leaders in the West, commentators watching with concern about the growing prevalence of anti-Semitic slogans and rhetoric at some of these demonstrations. The reluctance of activists, especially on university campuses, to denounce Hamas for its evident war crimes and atrocities. And, and while there have been some pro-Israel groups out there, the overwhelming message from so many of the major demonstrations centered on the Palestinian civilians in Gaza. Just yesterday in New York City, thousands of protesters filled the Brooklyn Bridge, chanting Free Palestine. What do you make of all that? 512-836-0590 here on KLBJ was a congresswoman. We played the clip just before the news break. Is she right? Is her way of thinking in line with the majority of, of how the Americans think and, and the president and his administration in supporting Israel? They're the ones that are out of line. I don't buy into that, but I'm interested in your thoughts. 512-836-0590 here on KLBJ. Clearly, more and more pressure from around the world weighing down on Israel. And then it ties back to the report that I I mentioned a little bit earlier in the show of how the Biden administration, through the back channels, behind the scenes, leaning on Israel to to dial back on how they're going to be going into Gaza, the approach they're going to take and all the rest. U.S., Military leaders not confident in Israel's plans. 512-836-0590 here on KLBJ. Give us a call or send us a text. I also mentioned right before the break this out of the Wall Street Journal. These wars are pushing up demand for weapons. And there's concerns of shortages. Western defense officials concern that Israel going to war, the battle between Russia and Ukraine, there's not going to be enough artillery shells and other weapons to keep our allies in the fight. 
report says the prospect of two hot wars potentially consuming arms and equipment from the same stockpiles or supply chains is starting to worry. Officials, NATO members, defense industries don't have sufficient spare capacity to react to the crises that we're seeing now, that according to the NATO Secretary General. Most companies producing as much as they can within their existing production facilities. The next step, according to experts, would be new investments. And that's a problem, bringing new facilities online, according to the journal report, takes from two to five years. Get just the cost of, you know, it's all about supply and demand, right? With demand increasing faster than production, prices of some supplies have skyrocketed. Here's just a, 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 a NATO standard 155 millimeter artillery shell had cost governments around $2,100 a piece before Russia invaded Ukraine last year. The cost of those shells today, $8,400. So the United States has been moving in recent months to try to pump billions of dollars into retool factories so they can produce more rockets, missiles, shells, and rocket motors. We've issued almost $25 billion in contracts to arm Ukraine and replenish U.S. stocks. Some European governments have placed some orders, but not on the scale of the Pentagon. We're the largest supplier by far of military equipment and funding to Israel, even though Germany is also a big provider. Just an example of how one U.S. company has been boosting production. General Dynamics is boosting production of artillery shells and other munitions faster than expected based on a lot of the investment coming in from the Pentagon. Companies targeting annual production of a million shells. That's uh, apparently about an increase of, of five times what, what they would normally do. And the authorities are saying they don't see the demand slackening anytime soon. I know a lot of you are thinking, here goes the military-industrial complex, right? 512-836-0590 here on KLBJ. Give us a call or send us a text. I mentioned at the top of the show, I want to give you the latest on the developments of the main shooter who's deceased. A couple of new developments on that. We know now that he legally purchased several guns some as recently as several days before those attacks in Maine. And we also learned, ABC was reporting this, we may have, he may have previously visited those two businesses, the bar and the bowling alley, at some point prior to his attacks. It's also reported by ABC, he tried to buy a silencer for a rifle at a local firearms store. That, according to the owner of the store, owner said the shooter came in. I don't give out the names, by the way, of the shooters. It's been my practice for a long time. We don't want to give them any more publicity. They don't deserve any of it. So the store owner says the shooter came in, checked off a box that incriminated himself because he said he was in an institution. Owner said our staff was fantastic. They let him finish filling out the form 
and then said, sorry, we can't give you this at this point in time. The owner said the shooter was very cooperative, said he would sort it out with his attorney, and he was sure he could get it clarified and rectified. That from ABC. We also learned this weekend that a sheriff in Maine says he sent out an alert to all law enforcement agencies in the state last month after learning that the shooter had made threats against his his army base. The sheriff sent out the alarm sometime in September in an effort to, to find this guy. He was in the reserves. The guy was said to have made threats regarding the Army Reserve Center where he was serving in Maine. The sheriff said he sent a deputy to the shooter's home. Deputy didn't find him there. And that's when the sheriff sent out the notice. After the stepped-up patrols around the base and, and a visit to the shooter's home turned up nothing, no sign of him anyplace, and so reports are the law enforcement agencies just moved on. The New York State Police, we know, was on mid-July was called in by West Point commanders when uh, this guy had talked about some of the things that were concerning from a mental health standpoint, state police troopers at that time took the guy to an Army community hospital at West Point for that two weeks of mental health evaluation that we've heard about. The Maine Department of Public Safety Commissioner said in a news conference yesterday that while the shooter had a history of mental illness, there was no evidence that he'd been involuntarily committed. Jody Madeira is an Indiana University law professor. She studied gun laws, said police in one state can alert counterparts in another state that someone's a danger and that the military can do the same with local police. She said someone dropped the ball because the shooter's threats and medical evaluation should have triggered that yellow flag law, which would have allowed his guns to have been taken from him, from his home. The Maine Department of Public Safety didn't comment about all this. The sheriff said it was unclear whether any other departments had received these alerts that the sheriff's office had sent out. Army's Public Affairs Office in the Pentagon didn't respond to requests for comments as of last night. And officials again said this weekend that mental health is a key focus of their investigation now into the shootings. In addition to the shooter having possession of those firearms and whether his psychiatric history should have kept him from possessing the guns at all. As I mentioned, the, the state public safety department there in Maine said no indication that shooter had been forcibly committed for mental health treatment. And so, of course, the focus continues to be on the mental health aspect of all this. Whether that's going to turn up any answers, who knows, right? The Department of Public Safety Commissioner said the shooter suffered a psychological deterioration in the months before the shootings when he was pressed 
on why the shooter's history of mental health issues weren't pinged by the state's yellow flag law, which, by the way, allows police to petition a judge to temporarily keep a person from possessing firearms if they're a danger to themselves and others. Although the law has been criticized because it's kind of cumbersome, there's a process you have to get a medical evaluation, somebody to sign off from that standpoint as well. The Department of Public Safety Commissioner said that Yellow Law's criteria is very specific. He said it's about an individual that's in protective custody with law enforcement to begin with. And he said, have to ask, do we have probable cause to believe they're in possession of guns or that they could be in possession of dangerous weapons? If we meet those criteria, then you take an individual in for the yellow flag assessment. And at the time, your criteria then changes from a likelihood of serious harm to the likelihood of foreseeable harm. In any event, none of that happened. And, of course, we know the sad story that followed. When we come right back, uh, a report out of the Wall Street Journal about how the Biden administration is at odds with insurance companies over mental health care and whether that played into any of this. Talk about that and a lot more coming up here on KLBJ. And Kenny Rawmeyer back with you here on a Sunday afternoon. Thanks a lot for being with us on KLBJ. I mentioned this report out of the Wall Street Journal today, how the insurance companies are at odds with the Biden administration over coverage for mental health care. So a lot of consumers with insurance forced to pay hundreds, even thousands of dollars for mental health care. Despite a law that's been around for 15 years, supposed to make this kind of treatment as affordable and accessible as any other type of medical care. So now the Biden administration wants to impose some new requirements on insurance companies that uh, the Biden team says would reduce out-of-pocket costs for mental health care, as well as substance use disorder treatment. However, the insurance industry is pushing back saying the proposal would drive up prices and set impossible-to-meet standards. So the administration's proposal would make insurers collect and analyze data that would ensure that certain insurance provisions, like denial of coverage, for example, or requirements that consumers have some insurance approval before treatment, aren't creating barriers to mental health treatment compared to other types of medical claims. The insurance companies say all this would impose costly mandates and wouldn't do anything to alleviate a shortage of providers. And, and that's been a big issue of having more providers in these in-network mental health systems. They say the cost of the requirements to insurers would be almost $300 million in the first year over $100 million in subsequent years. They say the mental health care system's infrastructure is already strained because of the, the rising demand and the lack of adequate resources. Journal says about 55% of people with mental illness, it's about 28 million individuals, get no treatment. That, according to a, a survey by a nonprofit, is focused on mental health. That same group said there's a shortage of mental health clinicians with an estimated 350 individuals for every one mental health provider. What a mess. 
we have on our hands there. 512-836-0590. Give us a call or send us a text here on KLBJ. I want to get to this. It's Like I said, it's probably a long shot, but it's going to be happening tomorrow in Colorado and in Minnesota. Week-long hearings featuring witnesses and legal scholars to explore whether what happened on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol qualified as an insurrection, and should that keep, providing he's the guy that's supposed to be on the ballot in November, should that keep former President Trump from being on the ballot in Colorado and same way in Minnesota. And then in coming weeks, according to the Washington Post, courts around the country might try to hold similar proceedings. There's deep divisions in the legal community about whether any of this is viable or not. It's all about a provision of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution adopted after the Civil War, all about protecting Americans' civil rights. Section 3 of that 14th Amendment says people can't hold office if they have previously taken an oath to support the Constitution and then engage in some kind of insurrection or provide help to enemies of the United States. It was primarily adopted to prevent former Confederate soldiers from getting into office and using their authority to undermine Reconstruction. So, one of the guys that you hear frequently on Fox News talking about a lot of things, legals, Jonathan Turley, law professor. He was asked about the merits of all of this today on Fox. Well, you know, this is a rather novel theory that's come into vogue uh, in the last year. Uh, what is astonishing is it's being defended by people who say that this is about protecting democracy. They protect democracy by denying the ability of voters to vote for one of these candidates. According to many polls, Donald Trump is now the leading candidate for the presidency. And so the effort now is to prevent uh, voters from being able to cast their ballots this theory is. I also think that it is fundamentally flawed. You know, this was was put into the Constitution after the Civil War, when hundreds of thousands of people died. It occurred when the Vice President of the Confederacy tried to retake the oath that he had previously violated. That was the impetus. That is what they were referring to. Um, and what the, the these courts are trying to decide is whether the, uh, the riot in the Capitol was an insurrection and right. most of the public don't view it that way and so legal scholars according to this piece in the washington post said if any state tries to keep trump from running the u.s supreme court would surely have to take it up and that, that its decision would settle the issue once and for all nationwide here's says turley's take on what happens if it's going to get to the supreme court I think there is enough time, but the delay in getting a ruling is troubling. I'm actually hopeful that we'll have a ruling, because I don't believe this can be sustained on appeal. I, I think it needs to go to the Supreme Court, and they can put this uh, to bed. The Constitution is clear. We're talking about insurrections or rebellion. This was neither. It was many things, none of which was good. But it was not, in my view, an insurrection or a rebellion. All right. It's just going to be interesting to see where that goes in the uh, Minnesota uh, state Supreme Court and in the courtroom there in Denver. All this starts in Denver tomorrow in Minnesota later on this week. I want to give you the latest as we begin to wrap up here on KLBJ. A little bit of news 
as far as uh, the big unions that's had uh, the strikes against the car companies. We know right before the weekend, the United Auto Workers struck a deal with Ford, and now they've done the same with Stellantis. They've agreed to a tentative deal. Uh, but meantime, not the same with General Motors. And in fact, yesterday, the UAW they expanded its strike against GM to an additional GM assembly plant in Tennessee. The deal with Stellantis would still need to be approved by the union. It's patterned after uh, the same kind of agreement that the UAW struck with Ford. 25% pay increases over the term of the deal. Uh, it's up to top scale then would be around 40 bucks an hour. There's cost of living adjustments, the right to strike over plant closures. Just to some of the concessions that uh, the UAW got. Reportedly, the strikes have collectively cost GM, Ford, and Stellantis billions of dollars in lost production. Ford said the, the union strike has cost it $1.3 billion. Amazing. Deutsche Bank said the overall cost increase uh, of the agreement at Ford be six plus billion dollars, seven plus billion dollars at GM, and six plus billion dollars at Stellantis if they all end up striking the same kind of deals. Pretty amazing. We'll see if these car companies can stay competitive. This report from J.P. Morgan out this weekend said the strikes haven't hit the dealers yet in terms of parts and service sales or new vehicle sales, at least not so far. They said if it last, the strikes would have lasted through the end of November, could have been a whole different story. But so far, that's not the case. Have you gotten your, uh, your vaccine for COVID yet? In the first month, 7% of U.S. adults, 2% of children have received the shots. One health expert said it's abysmal so far. There's the latest on the COVID vaccines for you. And we are flat out of time for this afternoon. Thanks to executive producer Garrett. Thank you for listening. Back with you next weekend here on KLBJ. And as always, the top of the hour news is coming up next.